He grew up under an oppressive communist regime. What does he see when he looks at where we are in America right now? Hi, I'm Stuart Shepard, and this is First Liberty Live. I just want to say thank you in advance to those of you who have taken time to like and share our videos, to, to pass them along to family members and friends of yours. I appreciate the fact. That's how we get to meet new people, and I appreciate the fact that you think enough of them to share them with others who might be interested as well. That's how we get to expand the reach of this. So just from me to you, thank you for doing that. Mihail Niemtu. Perfect. Am I, am I even close? Perfect. I'm doing the best I can. He's from Romania, was born there while it was still under communist rule under uh, Ceausescu, which we'll get to here in just a second. You're an activist, you're an author, you've run for office once, you, you've written a, a dozen plus books that are, are popular, mo most of them in Romanian, so I, I've not read any, and I apologize for that, because I, I would have to learn a whole language to do that. You have a PhD from King's College in London, and you're here visiting with us in your role as a senior fellow with the Center for Religion, Culture, and Democracy here at First Liberty Institute. Hi, Mihail. Thank you for having me. Good to see you. It's good to have you here. I, first, and I've got to ask you this, because Romania, for those that are geographically challenged, like I am, I had to look it up on the map, but you share a common border with Ukraine. You're both on the Black Sea. It, 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 it's equivalent to, I mean, when I think of where we're sitting right now, as if Russia had invaded Oklahoma, and I'm sitting here in North Texas. You have a view on this that's very different than the rest of us do. What do you see when you see what's happening with Russia invading Ukraine? We also have a border, a maritime border with Russia uh, because of the Black Sea. Yeah. And of course, we, as we speak, have hundreds of thousands of refugees coming from Ukraine to Romania. Some of them stay or decide to stay, decided to stay in Romania. Some left Romania for other Western European countries. And there are probably 500,000 refugees in Poland, a few others in, in uh, Slovakia and Hungary. What we are seeing is, of course, a perfect example of Russian aggression against a sovereign nation, against a sovereign state. And of course, I was reminded that in 1978, when I was born, Russia invaded Afghanistan. Yep. Uh, of course, I was reminded that Russia invaded Prague in 1968, 10, uh, 10 years before I was born. We should and mention Russia unsuccessfully invaded Afghanistan. They never were able to make it work. Uh, it's true, but it took some time for them to realize it's going to be a, a, an unsuccessful enterprise. Russia also uh, demolished the hopes of the Hungarians in 1956, if I'm not mistaken, in Budapest, when the revolt against uh, the communist regime took place, when the students went against this oppressive regime, uh, the Soviets again uh, somehow suppressed the movement. So what we see right now in Ukraine is a combination, I would say, uh, between two things. On the one hand, we have Russian imperialism. On the other hand, clearly we have like the ghost of the communist past still haunting Kremlin and the leader himself, Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin. And there's no way you cannot question the roots of this attitude towards uh, its neighbors, Russia, Russian attitudes towards uh, Ukraine and, and, and Romania. Um, there's a sense of probably cynicism when they think about smaller countries, smaller nations like the Baltic states, like uh, Poland, when they think about countries like Romania and Ukraine, they don't think we deserve this, the same kind of status they, they, uh, they would enjoy in the larger international scene. And um, we have to ask what are the main causes for 
this development in, in Vladimir Putin's behavior. Uh, have we, the West, failed to grasp at the right moment, you know, his intentions? Uh, have we encouraged him to, to behave like this? I mean, there are, like, many questions we have to, to ponder. And, and my understanding is, and it's incomplete, admittedly, but the, the church in, in Ukraine was the Russian Orthodox Church. I mean, they, they paid fealty to the church in Russia, which they were trying to split off and, and have their own leadership, is my understanding correct? And this puts all of that at risk. We are here in an institution that very much uh, values l religious freedom, and this is the problem with established churches. When you have the Russian Orthodox Church being funded by the Russian government, it's very difficult for, uh, for such a church to actually properly critique in a prophetic tone uh, the actions of the government. So right now, you're right, the Orthodox in Ukraine are split between two churches, one which is uh, under the Kremlin's guidance, and then you have the local church uh, in Kiev, which is still uh, sovereign. Obviously, we have a Greek Catholic and a Catholic presence in the West, in, in Ukraine. But the beautiful thing, and I have to say this in, in a very straightforward, when, uh, straightforward manner, is that local churches in Romania and in Hungary and in Slovakia have welcomed the refugees irrespective of, of these confessional barriers or uh, differences. And it's a time when humanity must be shown and displayed in action, not just in words. Very good. I, you were born in Romania while it was still under communist rule. Uh, Nicolae Ceausescu was a familiar name to those of us who were living through the 80s at that time. It was on the news every night. We heard that name over and over again. The regime was overthrown in 1989 when you were just a kid still, but you saw a lot in those early years. It's hard for us to imagine here in the United States what it's like to, to live under a government that is that invested in every aspect of an individual family's life. Try to paint that picture for us. What was it like growing up under that kind of rule? Well, it was not easily. In material terms, we, we experienced hunger. We experienced um, all sorts of short shortages. I mean, I remember uh, as a kid, it was not easy during, uh, during the day and during the evenings to, to cope with, with, um, with the shortages. Sometimes I had to write my homework using a candle because there was no electricity in our town, in oh. our entire region. Yeah. Uh, I remember the days when uh, we had to queue up for like a piece of bread and uh, I, together with my brother, would do that almost like every day. Uh, this prompts me to say that, you know, Jesus multiplied the bread and communism multiplied uh, the cues for, for, for bread. Wow. And uh, this is something uh, that's still vivid in my memory. Of course, institutionally speaking, from a kind of um, more objective perspective, communism was a regime that hated religion, Christianity in particular, probably because communism is a mockery of Christianity in, philosoph in philosophical terms. And we'll unpack that more in just a moment. But yeah, go on. absolutely. Yeah. And then communism didn't quite like any sense of admiration for the past, having a strong attachment to figures from the pre-communist era was almost impossible. So we couldn't hear dur during our sort of uh, school years, we couldn't listen to stories about the founding fathers of America, about the great writers even of the West, uh, because they were either bourgeois or they were representatives of a either monarchical institu institution or um, of a Christian uh, community. And so 
what I see right now in America as a challenge for the younger generation is, again, the emphasis on the present and on the future as, as a promise, but a lack of appreciation for what the tradition of the West has given us. Yeah. I, and, and you've painted a picture that is so familiar, and that is simply this. Communism promises a lot. I mean, on the front end, when you hear about it, you're like, wow, this would be awesome. Everybody's fed, every, everybody's working, everything's happening, uh, the nation grows, and we're all united as one. But the reality of it never lives up to that, and you end up with those long lines. And, and as part of that, they have to erase the history, they have to erase the culture, they have to remove all uh, thoughts about religion, uh, specifically Christianity. And they have to pump up uh propaganda. When reality is grim, you need strong propaganda, just like now in Russia. So when the soldiers were, were not getting the, the food they were promised, I mean the soldiers from the tanks which are close to Kiev right now, yeah. okay? When they realized they were not given the appropriate food they expected, uh, Moscow, Kremlin, had to sort of pump up the propaganda, uh, telling uh, the world that, you know, everything is fine, everything is okay. So in a sense, we have to see communism as a, as a system built on foundational lies. There's always a big, deep lie which is underneath the whole construction they have uh, erected throughout, uh, throughout the years. And the biggest offense you can commit as an individual is to point out the lie, to speak the truth. It's not easy. It takes courage to tell the truth and to speak truth to power. Is, it's it, it's even more uh, it's even more dangerous. And of course, we have to to remember the fact that uh, many many not refugees but uh, anti-communist dissidents from Russia left Russia in the 70s, in the 80s. I think of Andrei Saharov here. I think of Alexander Solzhenitsyn. They left. Uh, Russia because uh, they they could not write and they could not speak freely in those in, in, in those days and they they found in America in particular refuge now the question is in the current circumstances when censorship is actually present in the social media uh, platforms of today uh, is it is it still the case that the West is welcoming free speech? Such questions, I think, need to be addressed. Now, let's talk about that a bit, because you just spoke at a luncheon with our, our whole staff here at First Liberty Institute, and one of the things you talked about was how the regime would have neighbor snitching on neighbor. You'd have to rat out your neighbor when they were doing things that were viewed as unfair. That idea of neighbor turning on neighbor is reprehensible. It's hard for us to picture but here we are with on social media. Social media encourage you to rat out your neighbor if they post something you find, I'm putting in air quotes, offensive. It's just the opposite of the Christian commandment, love your neighbor. And in particular, to report on your family members, on your friends and colleagues, uh, especially when, when you were required by the communist, uh, communist state and I'm thinking here about the KGB or the Romanian Securitate, to speak about the private matter, the private conversations of, 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 of those uh, friends of yours, that was reprehensible and that was hard. And some people did it. They did it because of pressure. They did it because they had to survive. And I, I really think that kind of decision to snitch upon your um, neighbor is, is deeply immoral and it's something that is destroying uh, the sense of trust which uh, 
civil society is built upon. So when there is no trust between individuals, then you have the government stepping in and regulating the relationship. And that's the beginning of the destruction of the civil society. And I think what you're describing here right now about, you know, when you talk about social media is, is precisely that. It's just the beginning of a, of a gradual erosion of the sense of trust which was so natural in the past for a country like America. So it destroys culture, it destroys history, it destroys the sense of religion and faith, it destroys community. I mean, relationships, it, turns, it destroys trust. relationships, it destroys everything in hopes of doing what? I mean, what is it that drives this when you get underneath the whole thing? What is it that pushes them to do all these horrid things to do something? What is that something? You need an army of slaves right if you want to be in charge if you want to be in control if you want to exercise uh, power in its naked for a naked form if you want to be a totalitarian state what do you need you need an army of slaves wow. right so uh, that's why before the interview i told you about dostoevsky because in a book which is extraordinary really uh, called Bessie in in russian the possessed or demons he has this description of a town in Russia, in Imperial Russia, 19th century, a town in which several intellectuals who are deeply influenced by Marxist ideas coming from the West, they begin to think about an utopian future in which snitching, snitching upon or spying upon your neighbor would be uh, fundamental. Also, a society in which the destruction of the cultural memory would be necessary for the bright future uh, lying ahead. So, so I think when we talk about such practices, we have to to be aware of, as I said, the failed experiments of the past. And if we don't learn anything from history, we will be condemned to repeat those errors. Now, we've been talking about this from the perspective of the government down, what a, a totalitarian regime will try to do to its people. Let's flip it now and talk about it from the individual perspective. From you as a young man growing up in Romania, clearly, in spite of the government's best efforts, you still learned about faith. How did that happen? I think by accident. Not many people were in my position, but my grandfather was a deeply devout and religious uh, Christian. Because of that, my father this time was not allowed to travel outside Romania. So I have to tell your uh, viewers, and we thank them for giving you a like and um, <laughs> all the support. My, for instance, my experience of communism, communism tells me that there were files which were produced for each individual uh, who had a direct relationship to a church or to you know, a, a religious uh, congregation. And if you showed any sense of attachment to that community, you were regarded as a, 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 as a danger for the system. So yeah. um, it was impossible to practice your faith publicly. It was difficult to, for instance, accept baptism in in, in a public kind of context, it was impossible to uh, to talk about the Bible in any kind of uh, situation, and and the only chance for us to talk about God or to find who Christ is was uh, through private conversations with with the elders, especially. And I was fortunate enough to be ten years old and to see the Bible always open uh, in my grandfather's house and. 
Of course, we had beautiful discussions about the book of Proverbs in general, about the New Testament and the Old Testament. And then, of course, we had conversations about, you know, the history of Christianity, what happened after, after the first apostles preached the gospel to the world. And so I got started, I got interested in theology because of those conversations. What is it about Christianity that is so offensive to a totalitarian regime? Why do they always go after it? Saying that Christ is the Lord, not the emperor, not the president, not uh, any temporal ruler. When you say, I believe in one Lord, when you recognize the Lordship of Christ, when you say that he is your, Christ is your king, when you say that he is the true Messiah, then you challenge any power, which is, as I said, temporary, and which is willing to use you as an individual uh, and to make you or turn you into a slave. That notion that, you know, uh, God is above everything is reprehensible for any, I would say, communist, any totalitarian regime. Whereas in the West, we had for many centuries a different understanding that above any government above any political system there are some perennial values and there are uh, some principles which are eternal and which clearly come from above that is from god uh, that understanding of the subordination of the government towards god is now eroding in uh, is being eroded in america and i think we need to do more in order to remind people that our rights our natural liberty doesn't come from the government, but it comes from God. And to give, give our, our followers here a, a clear picture, we've all been to a worship service here in the United States where they sing worship songs to God. It's just, it's a standard part sure. of our culture now. You were taught worship songs toward government officials. We were compelled, physically even brutalized, physically, um, I would say, obliged to um, to be part of those uh, I, would call, I would call them liturgical almost almost secular liturgical practices in which we would sing yeah you're right praises to Ceausescu praises to the Communist Party and if you would say no then you would have to suffer Wow I, what are the strategies for survival uh, if we find ourselves ever in our lifetimes under a regime that's trying to remove the culture and the history and the faith of its people, how do we survive? What do we need to do? Uh, I must say that, you know, I was fortunate enough to have um, a house, a home where there were lots of books. My mom was a teacher in those days and she collected lots of books. We had more, more than, I think, 3,000 books. Wow. And literature, philosophy, history, arts were still available through translations and not only uh, for for my uh, for my generation and I think today if you want to reconnect yourself to the roots of the Western civilization you have to go through the same kind of uh, type of effort okay. you have to find who are the voices that truly represent the perennial values of the West, and there's, there's only w one way to do that, is by saying no, or at least saying for a while goodbye to the contemporary influencers that come from Hollywood and elsewhere, and you have to say hello to Thomas Jefferson, hello to uh, Benjamin Franklin, hello to uh, John Adams, in order to recognize the partners uh, of of a fruitful conversation about the, the true meaning of the political order. 
And, and in your story, it really came down to the family unit as well. I mean, that was a crucial part of this. Yes, we did meet every week. I remember uh, it was it was a ritual for us uh, to have to have lunch together every Sunday. It was very important, and in those very intimate and private conversations, we could talk about the meaningful things in life. Unfortunately, such such experiences today are not uh, are not so often. I mean, people in a time of globalization travel a lot. Sometimes it's quite difficult to to find the the appropriate schedule or the right time for everybody who is part of a family uh, for for such gatherings or reunions to to take place. So we have to pay attention to everything that destroys uh, the intimacy of familial conversations, and we have to be stubborn enough to be present in those communities which are feeding the soul and not just the brain. You also emphasized to our staff the importance of storytelling. What do you mean by that? I, I simply remember very well and very vividly that uh, apart from the official narratives which were told by, say, uh, the newspapers, the TV stations which were controlled by the government, so apart from the official narrative, we had the privilege to listen to stories which were very personal, which were very candid, and which were very authentic stories that were grounded in the, ex in the personal experience of elderly people in particular who were born before the advent of communism. Yeah. For instance, my grandfather would tell me stories about Romanians who lived in Transylvania, who left the country in the 1920s, came to America, went to work for Ford Company or any such uh, other uh, uh, you know, capitalistic institution, and yeah. they would come back home, that is, they would go back to Romania with a strong work ethic, with a certain understanding of freedom, and such stories about the beautiful America the entrepreneurial America were feeding our hearts and minds and were very inspirational. We didn't hear anything about, excuse me if I can say that, LGBT movements, about woke culture, about anything that would really look like destructive in terms of, uh, uh, in terms of uh, you know, building that sense of confidence um, and that sense of appreciation for what the West is. Let's, let's talk about that, because that was then, this is now. When you look at American culture now, where we are as a nation, what do you see? You have a unique perspective on it. I, I see an erosion of uh, self-confidence in particular. People simply are accustomed to denigrate uh, this country, and that's not good. This country is the pillar of the Western civilization. If America falls, the West will fall. There's no way we can resist the pressure coming from China or from radical Islam or from even perhaps other authoritarian regimes without knowing who we are. We have to revisit, as I said, the sources. We have to revitalize the, converse, the, the fundamental conversations about uh, the values which are perennial, and if we don't do that, if we only are part of shallow conversations about you know things that happened yesterday and will be irrelevant tomorrow, then we are going to lose something important. Uh, the institution which is also under attack right now in America seems to be the family. Uh, the church is uh, more and more irrelevant. Uh, in the past, we were accustomed to see politicians um, from senators and members of, of, of the House of Representatives to the president himself who would pray, who would perhaps even kneel. Uh, Ronald Reagan was such a president. He yeah. was truly pious. We remember the day when he 
was shot in, I think, 1981. He survived that uh, attack and then I think I'm not mistaken if I say that he became very, very re religious or at least uh, even closer. He came even closer to God. And so he started to read the Bible every day, asking uh, the Almighty God, what is the purpose for his life? Such questions seem banal and at the same time they are extremely relevant. If you don't have politicians having a sense of mission, asking such deep questions, what is the purpose of my life as a president, you are going to have, um, I think, a terrible future. And in America, somebody like Ronald Reagan understood that the meaning of his life is intrinsically related to the liberation of 400 millions of Eastern Europeans. And in eight years, just eight years, he accomplished that, which is unique, which is amazing. And we have to appreciate uh, such figures, such political figures, who are imbued with Christian values and who have managed to transform the world for the good. What's your encouragement for America's families? Well, I think uh, America is still a, a great country where millions of people want to come. And uh, I think America will still be, for the next 100 years, a very powerful democracy, a very powerful nation, if you stick to the foundational principles of the Founding Fathers, and if you do not forget your first love, which was love for the, li for the liberty of your ancestors and love for God. Very good. Anything else you'd like to share before I let you go? Well, I would say one more thing at the end. Um, if we talk about war and peace, diplomacy is just as important as military strength. So if America wants to be seen in the future as an ally, as a friend, its diplomacy, I think, should get better. I totally agree with the sanctions on Russia. I think they are fundamental. I think sometimes calling uh, an action what it is in this case, uh, an, 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 an aggression towards a sovereign country like Ukraine needs to be called uh, an aggression, needs to be such an act of, uh, say, such an accusation needs to be doubled or paralleled with, with an effort to talk to your enemy. And this is what Ronald Reagan was able to do. On the one hand, he was putting pressure on USSR. On the other hand, he managed to talk to the president himself then, uh, Gorbachev. There are ways in which we can do that for the future, and I think this only will bring peace to the world. Very good. Great chatting with you. A lot of good thoughts in there. A lot to chew on. Mihail. Thank you. Niamsu. Thank you. Am I even close? Excellent. Oh, Very good. Oh, yeah, you're just saying that. Thank you. <laughs> Great appreciate chatting it. with thank you. I appreciate your input today. Hey, and thank you for watching. At First Liberty Institute is, is devoted to it. The only thing we do is to fight for the religious freedom of all Americans. That's our job. That's our mission. If, if that resonates with you as well, uh, would you consider being a supporter of ours? Just look for the red donate button, the big red give button at the top of our webpage at firstlibertylive.com, and you can be part of this work. We will see you next week right here on First Liberty Live.